This is Melissa, and today is Thursday, the 23rd of November, 2023. And in the United States, today is Thanksgiving. It's the most traveled holiday of the year. So between Wednesday and Sunday or Monday of the holiday weekend, a lot of people on the roads and a lot of people in the air. If you are one of those people then I wish you safe travels. I am recording this on Tuesday before Thanksgiving because I have some people coming over, family, on Thursday and some things to do. So it's kind of rush, rush, but I wanted to sit down and talk to you about Thanksgiving. When I was a child, it was my favorite holiday. I liked it better than Christmas. And the reason why is that It was a tradition that we all went to one of my uncle's houses in East Texas. And everyone in the family came to my aunt and uncle's house for Thanksgiving. And so what that meant was that there were at least, at the minimum, 25 people for Thanksgiving lunch. But it might be as many as, I I think, 40 have been there before. That's all the cousins. Everybody was there. And I really liked that. Plus it had, you know, my favorite foods. I I really was quite fond of what we in the American South call dressing. Those Yankee Northerners call stuffing. We would never stuff a bird in the South. Just maybe a little bit of onion. But the dressing is on the side. Pecan pie. Love it. But more than the food was the family. I just enjoyed seeing cousins. I had a cousin my age that lived in Florida, all the way down at the tip of Florida, Miami. And I seldom saw her, usually once a year at Thanksgiving. Christmas was fun, gifts and all the things that children like, but Thanksgiving far and away, hands down. So when I was thinking today about, oh, what to talk about, if I'm going to talk about Thanksgiving, well, not everybody in the world celebrates Thanksgiving. It's huge in the U.S. In Canada, it's very big too, but it's celebrated in October. The whole time that I was with Alan in Canada, we never celebrated Thanksgiving. You know, a a Scotsman and an American in Canada. It just wasn't a big deal. And I think longtime listeners know that, that Alan's holiday, his holy day, was Christmas. And he liked to share some thoughts with you on Christmas and play some music, get that guitar out of the coffin, as he would say, and and play a song that was very spontaneous that day. But today, I'm gearing up for Thanksgiving. So the U.S., Canada, Liberia, evidently that started in the 1800s to celebrate the colonization of freed African Americans. In the Netherlands, they celebrate it in honor of the pilgrims that lived in the city of Leiden, I think, um, before they headed over to the New World. There is a kind of a 
harvest Thanksgiving thing in Japan and I believe something else like that in the United Kingdom. And there are harvest festivals around the world. One that caught my eye was Ertendankfest. Ertendankfest, <laughs> something like that. Or Germany, obviously. And I'll share with you, I made a little thing this morning when I stumbled upon Ertendankfest. I saw they, they make all of these almost like altars with thanks, you know, the harvest bounty. And one thing they did, I saw a lot of these big, huge displays with kind of little pictures that they would make with dried beans and fruit and nuts and add some stuff in. I took a picture of the one that I made this morning on a little tray, which I tucked away to put on the table Thursday. And I might add some other things that you won't see in the picture. I've got a few things I didn't have much of a garden this year, but if it's Thanksgiving, it's a, har- a harvest bounty. It was so hot, recall. It was very, very hot. And uh, I, the only thing that really managed to make it through the heat were some herbs. So I may add a few sprigs of rosemary into my little Erton Dunkfest tray. But I don't care that much for the holiday anymore or any other holiday really and I think one of the reasons is I'm very focused on what I do I don't like to take time away from it particularly and this year I I have a lot of stresses I've mentioned the the property taxes that are due in January and you know it just when it rains it pours and so the the pouring that's going on in my life is that at the end of this month, next week, I have to have a little surgery on my nose to remove skin cancer. So I, I found a little bump there about, oh, nine or ten months ago, and I had that removed, and they said, well, you know, it's the uh, basal cell carcinoma, they call it. And that's probably the best possible situation that you could have in terms of skin cancer. But a couple of months ago, maybe six weeks ago, I found another bump not too far from that one on my nose. And I went back and they biopsied that. And sure enough, it too is a basal cell carcinoma. And the dermatologist was concerned that, you know, there may be something else going on on the there that I'm having repeated, um, you know, little cancer spots. So he sent me to a specialist, and when he told me that he wanted me to go to the specialist, I said, well, you know, I don't have health insurance because who can pay 800 to to $1,000 a month for health insurance, which is what you pay here in the States. But anyway, I went to the specialist, and they have this procedure where they kind of slice away the tissue until, and then while you're there and they're keeping the area numb, they send it to their little pathology lab on site and they look at it and they just keep slicing away until they come up with clean tissue that doesn't show any cancerous growth on it. 
Uh, so, okay, all well and good until they got to the part where they said, and there may be, you know, after this, there may be the need to do a skin graft or plastic surgery. And, you know, all I heard was, ka-ching. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, okay, this is going to cost. But as discouraged as I was when I heard about the tax increase on the house, this bad news just hit me a little bit differently because I think I'm in a better frame of mind. And it is this. This is life. And life is not pleasant for most people who really want to be in it, who want to live in reality, who aren't trying to escape either through fiction, entertainment, um, substances, whatever. It, you know, life has plenty of rough patches and you will be defeated. Your mind will be defeated if you don't have the stamina or fortitude or, you know, to, to, to face things head on and still find reasons to have some happiness and thankfulness in your life. And with that in mind, I thought, well, you know, from time to time I need to take it a little easier and, and just do some things that aren't, you know, me being chained to the desk working all the time. A couple of my cousins um, sent me some money last week or the week before to take Betty to do a few things. And um, earlier in the summer, some cousins got together and we got her big, huge potholes in her driveway repaired. But this one I thought, you know, let's do something that's just pleasant for Betty. And I, I really couldn't afford to chip in, but I could drive. And so what the cousins did, we said, you're going to get a perm because she likes to do that. She likes to look good. And a new pair of shoes, which she had been saying that she needed for a while. She didn't know that that the money was coming from the cousins. And when I said, you're not going to pay for this, this hairdo, she said, well, why not? I said, well, I'll tell you later. I'll tell you on the drive in, but don't, you know, don't worry about it. You're, you're not paying for it. So when I told her that some of the cousins had sent the money for it, she was thankful. She was appreciative. She was surprised. But then she told me a story about her son. She has one child and he was diagnosed with MS, multiple sclerosis, quite a number of years ago. And he's not in great health, but at, at the time that he was diagnosed, there was an experimental medicine. He didn't have insurance. She had the money that she'd been left by her husband who passed away. Naturally, she wanted to help. And she was paying for his prescription, which was $1,400 a month for some many months. And she told me all this. She was just telling me this past week that eventually there was some charity, she just said, from out west that covered the cost of the medication. And he was on that for 
about a year and a half, and it didn't do anything to help him. So he got off of that. But the reason why she told me the story, that she didn't say this was the reason, but the reason why is is because Betty has dignity, and she's self-sufficient. She's 94 years old, and she lives alone, and she drives, and she likes to do things for herself. And she's careful with her money, and she's careful with her possessions and her house. She takes good care of everything. And she just needed me to know that money is tight, not because, you know, she's some spendthrift who's never been careful, but because she cared about her son and wanted to help him. But it was a nice day. We had a good day. We had fun. Usually it's just zip, zip, zip. When I do something with Betty, it's, you know, it's in and it's out. You know, love you, gotta go. Or, or if I have her over for lunch, you know, we sit down, we eat, and she'll help me do the dishes. And, you know, love you, bye-bye, and I'm back at it. Uh, that's just, you know, the rhythm that I've chosen for myself is pretty high speed. I started thinking about what what stories what what is interesting for Thanksgiving in the big wide world and you know me personally what do I have to share and I started thinking about Thanksgiving horror stories uh, and sure enough I've got at least one of them I think if I thought hard enough I'd come up with more but there was the time years ago when I was hosting a Thanksgiving and it was a big thing, a lot of friends coming over. I was away from family. I think I may have had a brother nearby at the time, but you know, it was a pile of friends coming over. And my dishwasher broke. Well, now, I mean, after being in Canada, you know, the idea of using a, a, a dishwasher is so alien to me. It, it, it just, you know, I don't do it. But at the time, it's like, oh, no, there'll be at least three loads of dishes and crazy, you know, and all kinds of stuff. So got to have a dishwasher. Well, mine broke on Thanksgiving Day. And, the you know, no one knew. Nobody who was over for Thanksgiving had any idea that I was carting dirty dishes back and forth to the bathroom and scraping them off the, into the garbage can and then sticking them in the bathtub where they were soaking until I could bring them in to the kitchen later again and clean them up. But, you know, it's like, okay, so you've got one disastrous Thanksgiving story. Well, look around and see what's going on in the world. And sure enough, everyone has a Thanksgiving disaster story. You know, sadly, maybe their house caught on fire because they didn't know that they weren't supposed to deep fry a turkey inside the house or, you know, just too many things in the oven or someone got food poisoning. I mean, there's some pretty grisly Thanksgiving horror stories out there. And I think one of the reasons why, I mean, I just mentioned that people are traveling in huge numbers right now. And it's because, you know, a lot of us, myself included, have some dysfunction in the family. And you're trying to put on a good face. You love people, but they may really get on your nerves. And... It can be stressful, and if you live in a family where people drink, then 
you know, tempers can flare. And, you know, I was blessed that that was not part of my upbringing, but, you know, it happens. I know it does. And people lose it, and maybe they spend too much money, uh, you know, trying to make everything look right or taste right or... Maybe they're not much of a cook and they're doing it all by themselves and it's stressful. So there are plenty of Thanksgiving horror stories. But because that was in my search engine, you know, Thanksgiving disasters. What disastrous things happened on Thanksgiving Day? Horror. Thanksgiving horror, horror stories. Well, I found that there was a horror movie that was just released the other day called Thanksgiving. It's an American slasher film. And you see on the poster for the movie, there is a man who's dressed like a pilgrim because they tell us that's why Americans have Thanksgiving is because the pilgrims were fed by the Indians and they, you know, they had a disastrous harvest and the Indians were there to help them and, you know, yada, yada, yada. So here is the slasher. He's got his big, huge axe perched on his shoulder and he's wearing that pilgrim hat, that unmistakable pilgrim hat, and he's off to slash people. So I was reading about it, and I, I, I realized that this was done by, um, directed by somebody named Eli Roth. And I'll just read you a little bit of the description here. It said, It is based on Roth's mock trailer of the same name from Grindhouse, 2007. It is the fourth feature-length film to be adapted from one of the mock trailers in Grindhouse, after Robert Rodriguez's Machete in 2010. And goes on to list the other things that he did. Well, immediately what popped into my head was the the grindhouse genre. Quentin Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez. I don't think I ever saw the movie Grindhouse, but I've seen a bit of Tarantino, and I know that it's... The, the grindhouse films, which they pay their homage to, are, were low-budget exploitation movies. And one thing led to another in my thought process, and I was thinking about Tarantino and the kinds of movies that he has done. And I've seen a couple of, quite a few of them, I'm sure, if I thought of everything that he's ever done. When I was with Alan, someone sent him a disc of a Tarantino movie that, uh, when did it come out? Maybe 2010, called Inglorious Bastards. Okay, I'm going to actually look this up really quickly. Inglorious Bastards. Okay, so 2009, Quentin Tarantino. They call it an epic period war film. The film tells an alternate history 
story of two plots to assassinate Nazi Germany's leadership. All right, so there you go. That is the setup for that. Now, Alan didn't watch the movie. We did not watch Inglorious Bastards. I've never seen it. I will never see it. <laughs> because I am following um, Alan's lead on this one. He said, I don't want to see that. And I asked him why. And he said, that will make me angry. So there you go. We didn't watch it. It would have made him angry. Here is something from Vice magazine written in 2019 about Inglorious Bastards. Ten years later, the Nazi-killing gore of Inglorious Bastards resonates more than ever. While Quentin Tarantino's Holocaust revenge film may not be historically accurate, it's hard not to revel in its barbarity. So there you go, right there. There is a, a hint as to what you'll find in this movie. It's barbarity. When Inglorious Bastards premiered in 2009, it was billed as the revenge story of every Jewish person's darkest fantasies. A tall tale of a group of Jewish American soldiers hunting down Nazis in World War II era France. During the film's initial promotional push, director and screenwriter Quentin Tarantino told Ella Taylor at The Village Voice, Over the years, when I was coming up with the idea of the American Jews taking vengeance, I would mention it to male Jewish friends of mine, and they were like, That's the movie I want to see. F that other story. I want to see this story. Even I get revved up, and I'm not Jewish. As anti-Semitism and hate crimes have increased in the U.S. in recent years, assaults against the Jewish community doubled in 2018 alone, empowered by the racist rhetoric and policies of the Trump administration. Tarantino's revisionist opus carries even deeper resonance than it did when it was released in 2009. Debuting 10 years ago today, the film follows a troop of eight soldiers known as the Bastards. Okay, All right. skipping through a little bit, you've got a southern-drawled lieutenant with Native American blood. He directs the unit to carry out one mission, and one mission only, kill Nazis. That means finding and eliminating every person with a swastika on the armband of their uniform and also removing their scalp for good measure. And that's exactly what the bastards do, often with flourish in the hands of their most effective and infamously vicious member, the Bostonian bat-wielding bear Jew, Eli Roth, the director of this year's Thanksgiving. All right, so I'm skipping through a bit of it because I want to get to the really horrible stuff here. The end result is a fiery blaze and explosive shootout in which Shoshana proclaims to be the face of Jewish vengeance, culminating in the satisfyingly savage massacre of Adolf Hitler, Joseph Goebbels, and a cinema full of members of the Third Reich. 
Tarantino is no stranger to violence in his films, but in Inglorious Bastards, he leveled up even by his standards. The film is rife with Nazis being burned alive, getting their brains bashed in, scalps sliced off, bodies penetrated by bullets, and swastikas carved into their foreheads so they can never hide from the atrocities they committed. While the film's portrayal of history may not be accurate or even remotely true, it's hard not to revel in its barbarity, considering who's on the receiving end. When I was looking at stories about Thanksgiving and about the Thanksgiving tradition, there were a lot of articles that I found about how awful Thanksgiving is a celebration of awfulness in every way, mostly colonialism, imperialism, the savage conquering of native peoples, and that it should be eliminated. But I think that true history is, it's hard to find, maybe even impossible. And revisionist history can be interesting if it's not done fictionally for entertainment value. If someone is trying to revise the narrative based on what they have uncovered or discovered or researched and found, that can be interesting. But I'm not one, no matter what is uncovered, no matter how times change, for year zero. I'm just not in favor of toppling statues and defacing monuments to foundational myths. Because... While there may be some elements of these histories that are shameful, I think it's more interesting and productive and helpful to have the conversation about it and try to learn from it rather than wipe it away and reinvent something else. And I noticed when I was reading about Eli Roth's Thanksgiving how many people were so happy to jump on the bandwagon of the celebration of the decimation of tradition and of everything that was Christian in the Christian portrayal of the pilgrim and these Christian oppression of native peoples in the early days of the colonization of the American continent or country. Let's not forget that Canada's up there and Mexico's down there. But you know what I'm saying. There are a lot of people who don't like tradition not because tradition is founded on some dark and bloody and shameful episodes, but simply because it's tradition. It's something that people can hold on to, which people need 
we need to know uh, this is what our family does, this is what our community does, and this is why they do it. You can think about it, you can rethink it, but it's worth knowing simply because it makes us who we are. I remember Alan told me one time about a tree, a big tree that grew in the village where he was born and raised. And it was an important tree. It was a landmark. It was a gathering spot. And it was cut down for no real reason. Eventually they put something else there, but it was just cut down. And Alan's idea about that was that it was cut down simply because it marked that village. It was distinctive. It was the gathering place. It was the focus. And he said, it cannot be allowed that people have traditions or they have landmarks that are just for them. It's the standardization. I was still looking at Thanksgiving disaster stories, and I stumbled upon something in Wikipedia that was actually called Thanksgiving Day Disaster. And I read it, and I'll share that a little bit of that with you, because it was an interesting story, and it led me on what, for me, was an interesting journey. The Thanksgiving Day disaster took place in San Francisco on November 29, 1900, at the annual college football game between the California Golden Bears and the Stanford Cardinal, also known as the Big Game. A large crowd of people who did not want to pay the $1, the equivalent of $40 today, admission fee gathered upon the roof of a glass-blowing factory to watch for free. The roof collapsed, spilling many spectators onto a furnace. 23 people were killed, and over 100 more were injured. The disaster remains the deadliest accident at a sporting event in U.S. history. Every year since 1892, the University of California and the Stanford University football teams have played an annual game towards the end of November or the beginning of December. The event has become known as the Big Game. The early games in the series were played in San Francisco. Those games suffered at least two calamities. At the 1897 game, portions of a packed grandstand collapsed under the weight of spectators. Nobody was killed, but a 10-year-old boy was hospitalized. In 1900, the game took place at the former California League baseball grounds, which local newspapers called the 16th and Folsom Grounds on Thanksgiving Day, which at that time was the last Thursday in November. Now, it goes on to tell you about the disaster. It said that the Glass Works Company was brand new and they only had one furnace active that day. The remaining furnaces were not scheduled to start until the following Monday. The furnace was 30 by 60 feet. That's approximately 9 by 18 meters. 
and was filled with fifteen short tons of molten glass with a temperature of three thousand degrees Fahrenheit. That's about sixteen hundred degrees Celsius. The kickoff took place at two thirty p.m. with a crowd of nineteen thousand spectators watching in the stadium, with thousands more watching in the street. A group of five hundred to a thousand people who did not want to pay a dollar for a ticket gathered on the factory's roof to watch for free. Factory employees tried to phone the police to turn back the crowd, but were instead told to speak to the game's lieutenant. The officer stationed at the stadium denied them entry when they went in to seek the game's lieutenant. The peak of the factory's roof was topped by a ventilator which ran the length of the building. It was not intended to hold weight of hundreds of people; it was just there to allow basically the heat to vent out of the roof. And I've got some pictures of this structure which I'll share with you. Approximately. Twenty minutes after kickoff, the ventilator roof collapsed due to the excessive load. Of the hundreds of people on the roof, at least one hundred people fell four stories to the factory floor. Sixty to one hundred more people fell directly on top of the furnace, the surface temperature of which was estimated to be around five hundred degrees Fahrenheit. Had the people broken through the furnace, their bodies would have been consumed by the molten glass. Many of the spectators were pinned by the binding rods to the surface of the furnace, making escape more difficult. Fuel pipes were also severed, spraying many victims with scalding hot oil. The fuel also ignited, setting many bodies on fire. Factory employees worked to remove bodies from the furnace. Using metal poles to poke bodies out of reach. Despite the incident, the game continued with Stanford winning. Thirteen people were killed on the day of the disaster, with nine more dying in hospitals in the day that followed. Days that followed, a 28-year-old man succumbed to his injuries three years after the disaster, bringing the final death toll to 23. All of the victims were male, and most were children. Many American newspapers reported the incident on the front page. Most of the content in the sports section was about the game itself. The San Francisco Chronicle referred to the event as the closest and most exciting game of football ever played by the elevens of the two California universities. Writers for the student newspapers at both universities also paid little attention to the disaster. The San Francisco Call referred to the incident as perhaps the most horrifying accident that ever happened in San Francisco. No physical memorial to the disaster exists, save for a cross at one twelve-year-old boy's grave. The first thing that struck me, besides what a terrible, terrible story this was, was that they said a large crowd of people did not want to pay. The one dollar, and then they said that's the equivalent of forty dollars. But then later on, they said that most of the victims were children. So if you're a boy, what's the likelihood that you've got forty dollars that you can spend to go to a football game?
And this had been hyped up in San Francisco for the last eight years. They had started it in 1892, and it was now the game. Everybody had to go to the big game. And it's still known as the big game. These were boys. The way that they, they ultimately they had an inquest, most of the blame fell on the city's police for not having enough policemen patrolling the stadium, patrolling the grounds, the areas around the stadium. And that was it. They used the opportunity to just blame the police. It's their fault. And then ultimately, after the inquest, one of them said, uh, one of the judges or one of the people said that these people, that it was their, their fault that they were somewhere where they shouldn't have been, and if they weren't where they shouldn't have been, it wouldn't have happened. So that was the outcome of the inquest, and that was that. I found it almost, I just kept going, because sometimes I'll do that if something is interesting to me. I'll just keep digging and digging. And it took me a while to find anybody at all down through history that had mentioned this, that had written about it, that had thought about it. One of them came from a Stanford University newspaper, which I think in the year 2015 had written about it. You know, 115 years ago, this happened. And they gave a little bit more detail on it. But certainly for 100 years after this tragedy, it wasn't written about. It was not remembered. But in the San Francisco Weekly, the SF Weekly, which they call the Ultimate Entertainment Guide. I found an article from 2012, Sudden Death, Boys Fell to Their Doom in SF's Forgotten Disaster. And it gave it a story that made it come a little bit more alive, that they had done a little bit more homework on it, and they had brought these characters to life, so to speak. And they also talked about the unhappy life of the workers who worked in this glass-blowing factory and the young men who were neighbors, couriers, making somehow making a small bit of income that also would have gotten up on that roof. Because that's the thing that really struck me. It's not so much that they were unwilling to pay the dollar, they didn't have the dollar to pay. And they just wanted to see the game. Maybe they followed the 28-year-old or the 40-year-old up there. Maybe they thought, well, if some adults are doing it, it's okay. It's safe. But I finally found something that told me a little bit about the, the, the boys, the victims. And that was from something called California True Crime. Thanksgiving special, big game disaster of 1900. They go through the disaster. They have some interesting pictures. Whoever put this together, Let's see if it has a name here. I don't see a name. Um, but whoever put this together did some homework. They went into an archive. They found newspaper clippings. They found photographs. It's interesting. They show you the park. They show you the stadium. They give you an, uh, a rendering, like an architectural rendering of the furnace and the glassworks and the roof over the glassworks and various other newspaper photographs that, uh, that were 
published around that time. And then they give you the victims. I'm not going to read about any of the victims that were over the age of 20, just 20 and younger, and I probably won't do them all, but I want to give you a little bit of an idea of who died at this tragedy. Hector McNeil, 15. Hector McNeil was the first victim to be buried after the tragedy. He worked at the White House flower shop and for O'Connor and Moffat. He was loved by his fellow workers and employers. He left behind a mother and a little sister for whom he was the main provider. He spent his nights at the YMCA night school and had only moved to San Francisco a few months prior from Texas with his family. His employers raised money to pay for his funeral. He went to the game with 50 cents and told his family he'd be back for dinner. He was buried in Laurel Hill Cemetery. So he's a 15-year-old boy. He has half a dollar, 50 cents. The entrance ticket was a dollar. He had half of what he needed to get into the big game. At 15 years of age, he was the main provider for his mother and his little sister. Now that's just tragic, you know. Who knows what happened to his mother and his little sister? What a difference. What, 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 what a different world I'm reading about where a 15-year-old boy will take on the responsibility of caring for his mother and his sister in a society where there weren't so many rules and regulations that that was even possible. I'm not glorifying it. I'm just, you know... It's interesting. Cornelius McMahon, 12. Cornelius McMahon was a schoolboy who died at City and County Hospital. He was so excited to watch the football game that he didn't sleep the night before. He suffered severe burns and a fractured skull. His mother didn't leave his side while he was in the hospital. His service was at St. Dominic's Church. His schoolmates were his pallbearers. He was buried at Holy Cross Cemetery. Robert Miller, 15. Robert Miller worked for Nathan Dorman and Co. as a messenger. He was identified by his father and a friend. He was loved and held in high esteem by his employers. He had spent the majority of his life at the Protestant Orphan Asylum, but was taken in three years prior to his death by Mrs. Milton. His employer paid for his funeral. His fellow co-workers were pallbearers, and he was buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery. So I guess he was identified perhaps by his adoptive father and a friend. But again, 15 years old and working. Charles Cummings, 15, was a schoolboy who ran errands for Southern Pacific. That's a railway, railroad. John Brown, 19, was a law clerk for R.B. Mitchell. He was one of the last people taken off the furnace. Talleyrand Barnwell, 15. Talleyrand Barnwell was one of five children. He was a schoolboy at the School of Mechanical Arts. He was identified by his younger brother. He was buried at Cypress Lawn Cemetery. Pallbearers were his fellow classmates. Ellery Crandall, 13. 
Ellery died at St. Luke's Hospital. He had many serious injuries, including a fractured thigh and arm. He fell unconscious after he was taken to the hospital, and doctors believed that it was possible he died from shock. He lived on Market Street with his mother, who was separated from his father, who lived in San Jose. He was the sole provider for his mother, and he worked as a messenger for SNN Wood & Co., his employers held him in high esteem and trusted him. They also paid for his medical bills and funeral. He was buried in Irvington, now known as Fremont. William Eckfeld, 12, wore a corduroy suit to see the football game. Earlier that day, he attended church at the Third Congressional Church. This is where he also went to Sunday school. On the day he died, he offered fruit as a thanksgiving offering to the church. He was identified by his father at the scene of the glassworks. He was one of four children. I read someplace else, I don't know, it might have been William Eckfeld, whose father identified him. They said a father identified his son by the socks, <clears throat> the socks that he was wearing. You see, I think Alan was right. History is a horror story. And I don't need to see. It's okay for some people to have revisionist history, you know. Not everybody gets to have history revised the way they'd like it to be. But I don't need a horror history entertainment when there's such heartbreaking heartbreaking stories that people have lived. Edgar Flahaven was a student at Mission Grammar. On the morning of the game, he kissed his mom and went down to see the crowds. He was a fan of the Berkeley team. At his funeral, his coffin had a beautiful floral football on it with blue and gold pieces for the Berkeley team. A service was held at St. Charles Borromeo Church. He was buried at Mount Calvary. And there are more, 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 more. I'll read you the about Lawrence Meal, nine, nine years old. Lawrence Meal was the youngest victim of the big game disaster. He was conscious when he made it to the hospital and asked for his mother. She was a schoolteacher who never left his side at the hospital. Hundreds attended his funeral, which took place at his home on 23rd Street. He loved football and had decorated his bedroom with pictures of college players. His mother did not know that he had gone to the game. Well, that was harder for me to read than I thought it would be because I had already read it, but there's more. There, there, some of the people who later covered this, they really did want to show the horror of the story. So I'll share those links, and if you want to look at them, you can.
that's where I'm at this Thanksgiving. Uh, but I'm I'm thankful. I'm thankful because I have a lot to be thankful for. There are people in my life who love me, and I have interesting, thought-provoking interactions with people that I've never met. And most importantly, I'm, I'm eternally grateful that I knew Alan and that my entire worldview changed profoundly and continues to change. It's an incredible gift, and I have said before, and I I mean this, this is a gift that I didn't earn, I didn't deserve, I received it. And I know that there are many of you who never met him, never talked to him, never emailed him, never, but you loved him, and you learned much from him and what a gift what a gift and that is why I do what I do that's why I chain myself to my desk another Quentin Tarantino revisionist piece of history that I never saw and never will Django Unchained just made that change made me think of that but uh, you know there is a lot to be thankful for you know times are hard and I and Believe me, Alan said it, he said it repeatedly, and I'll say it again, it will get harder. And that's why taking a little bit of time to be with people that you love or uh, or, or having some tolerance for the people that in your family of birth or you know, your birth origin family who just drive you crazy. But if there's something about them that you can find in that you share in common and you can have some tolerance and some patience there are rewards and I'm going to have food to put on the table and I didn't have to do it all by myself Aunt Betty's bringing her famous green bean casserole and her delicious corn pudding and one of my brothers is probably going to take a stab at making a walnut pie this year something different and I don't have to do it all I'm making a mushroom dressing and mushroom gravy and cranberry sauce and if I have the time and energy tomorrow I'm even going to make some homemade dinner rolls and another brother's making mashed potatoes And my cousin's wife ordered from a really good place a smoked turkey. And she's bringing that. And there's only seven for dinner because now everybody's got their own tradition. And another brother lives not too far away. But his wife has children and there are grandchildren. And they'll have at least 15 in their house and that's been their tradition for a while. So things change. And I've changed, and I look at things with less of the enthusiasm that I had as a child, and sometimes it's the groan, ugh, the work of it all. But there's 
joy there too and something to be thankful for. I am going to replay a little snippet of the real history that I did with my Aunt Betty many months ago, I think back in March, called Aunt Betty and the Value of One U.S. Dollar. And she tells a Thanksgiving story from her childhood. And it bears repeating. Okay, one more story. I'm going to make you tell one more story. And that is, okay, so you had chickens. You had plenty of eggs. Uh And then you had the chickens that you remember eating plenty of chicken meat. Yeah. But Thanksgiving, that good old American tradition, Thanksgiving requires a turkey. Mm -hmm. And a turkey was a real treat. And I want you to tell the story of the year that Meemaw just did not have enough money for a turkey. She didn't have any money for a turkey. And um, she uh, she uh, knelt down and prayed, and she said, Father, what am I going to do? I need to have a turkey for my Thanksgiving dinner for my family. And she had just got up and walked outside, and there was a truck. A truck was filled with turkeys in the back of it. It was driving along the road going to market, and one of the turkeys flew out and walked right up to where she, where she was standing, and she reached down and got the turkey <laughs> and cooked it. <laughs> And the truck kept going when the turkey <laughs> flew off. It didn't even know, it didn't miss the turkey. <laughs> so she had a turkey dinner for Thanksgiving. Yeah. And that makes me think, you see, you know, I'm just thinking about the difference between how we're ready. Right, we go to the store and everything's all neat and tidy, it's under plastic wrap. But mm-hmm. when Meemaw wanted to take one of her chickens and cook it, what did she do? Well, she cut the head off. Yeah. She went and grabbed it. Uh, and grabbed it, and uh, and sometimes she would wring its neck mm-hmm. and twist it, twist it around and around until the body would fall off, and she'd have the head in her hand. Oh, <laughs> I mean, it's a gruesome thing. But. It is, and then she would have to pick it uh-huh. and then dip it in hot boiling water to get all of the little feathers out, uh-huh. and that. That's what they did back then, you yeah. know, when they had chicken yeah. to cook. They had to do that. Yeah. So it was a production. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, Betty... And she didn't have um, a hot water heater. Mm-hmm. All of the hot water had to be boiled on the stove. Well, that's how I lived in Canada. <laughs> It had to be boiling, you know, you had to build a fire Uh in the stove and then boil your water. Wow. Well, Betty, thank you so much for letting me pick you up this morning and sharing all this with people. And I, I just... I'm happy to help you any way I can. Happy to help. That's sweet. I love that. Thank you. And then... I'm going to close with something that I would call a gift from my mother. It was from her that I first heard this Quaker song that I'll play at the end. 
and it's been done by many, many people, but it was my mother. I'm thankful that my mother loved history and music and anything that was beautiful. So because of my mother, I can share with you a song, the Quaker song, Simple Gifts. I hope that you're all well out there and that you enjoy a very happy Thanksgiving if this is something that you celebrate and for everyone else in the rest of the world. Have a good week and take care. Well